Let's get started. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11, we'll continue our study of Daniel. Um, and as you turn there, let me open us in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Gracious Almighty God, we do thank you and praise you for who you are. You are the sovereign God of the entire universe, uh, and to all things belong you. And as we study Daniel 11 uh, this morning, our question will be the question of the psalmist. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So, Lord, as we read uh, and study together Daniel this morning, uh, encourage us with that message, that we not be um, dismayed or led astray by the kingdoms of this earth, but that we uh, exercise uh, faith, and trust in you, put our hope and your sovereign guidance of all things to their perfect end, uh, looking to you for strength uh, in the midst of difficult times, and uh, putting our hope in you, even if it means uh, sacrificing our lives for the sake of your kingdom. Give us the kind of faith that um, you want to see in your saints. Uh, give us the obedience that comes from faith, as we trust in you more than we trust in ourselves, and especially more than we trust in the earthly powers of this world. Uh, teach us this morning by your spirit. Guide us in all matters of uh, faith and godliness. And most of all, show us our need for Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, so for the past several weeks, uh, we've been in the second half of the book of Daniel. Um, which largely consists of a series of Daniel's uh, visions. And two weeks ago, um, we started our discussion of Daniel's final vision, which, as we said, covers the last three chapters of the book, from Daniel 10 to 12, is all one visionary experience that Daniel has. So last time we um, were in chapter 10, which opens uh, this final vision by focusing on the circumstances in which Daniel receives it. Um, and we're told specifically that Daniel receives this vision during the third year of Cyrus. And just to, to uh, recap, in the first year of Cyrus, that was when the first wave of Jewish exiles returned to Jerusalem from captivity and began to rebuild the city and the temple. But by the third year, um, the work on the temple has stopped um, because um, the Israelites have faced opposition both within the land of Israel um, but also opposition from other parts of the empire. So the third year of um, Cyrus would have been a time of discouragement for God's people both in Judah and in Babylon as the initial joy of the return faced the difficulties of opposition. Furthermore, we talked about Daniel received this vision by the Tigris River, 
which means he's not one of the returning. Um, and then we saw Daniel's response. His response was to engage in a prolonged period of mourning and abstaining from um, certain foods. And what's remarkable about that is Daniel consecrated himself to the advance of God's kingdom, even though he wasn't one of the ones directly involved in the rebuilding of the temple, nor would he ever uh, see it. Um, so once again, as we've seen earlier in the book of Daniel, God responded to Daniel's spiritual act of, of praying by communicating with him. Uh, this time, uh, he communicates to Daniel through uh, one who uh, we noted had the appearance of a man, or just behold, a man. Um, a man clothed in priestly garments, but who has these, this wondrous appearance, um, very much like uh, theophanies in other parts of the Old and New Testament. And we talked about how this man's appearance communicated to Daniel a sense of the omnipotence and all-gloriness of God. Uh, Daniel fell prostrate before him, but God's purpose in, um, in revealing this glorious figure to Daniel was not to crush him, but to encourage him. The figure had been sent to Daniel in response to his prayers in order to give him insight and understanding. And we saw this beautiful picture over the course of chapter 10 where Daniel's physical postures change from being flat on his face, prostrate and mute, unable to speak, to being strengthened and able to stand and able to, to speak all through the work um, of, of encouragement in this exchange. And then finally, we noted cha how chapter 10 gives us a glimpse of the con that the conflicts that we experience here on earth are a counterpart of a great spiritual conflict in the heavenly realm. An awareness of this spiritual conflict helps prepare us for the challenges of life here on earth by encouraging us to clothe ourselves in spiritual armor. So as Paul says in Ephesians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, um, so Daniel 10 gives the prologue to the vision, um, whose substance starts in Daniel 11, as we'll see today. And most of um, uh, this vision we'll see concerns the future political history of the Near East. And then, so it kind of starts with a more general portrait of that history, but then zeroes in on specific moments um, that have effects on the people of God. Um, and again, we'll see that the message here is that the people of God in all times and places are encouraged to live faithful, uncompromising lives, even in the midst of horrendous persecutions. So with that as an introduction, let me read forth uh, Daniel chapter 11. It is long, so uh, um, you, you might want to try to follow along. <laughs> As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall rise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall rise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of the heavens, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with 
which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods and their, with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep com coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flattery. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he be shall, shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. 
And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for the plots shall be, plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to the land, to his land, with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For the ship, for ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offerings and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end or to await the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasure, treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Thus far the word of our God, may he uh, add his spirit to guide us in truth, uh, both uh, in our minds, but especially in our hearts this morning. Okay, so the vision uh, gives a very long um, 
detailed account um, of a specific um, time of, of history. So after, um, yeah, so, it, and, and just to kind of, it, it starts with kind of more broad history and then zeroes in, as Daniel often does, on the more particular history, uh, how world history affects the people of God. Um, so, in particular, most of the vision focuses on um, the struggles between this king of the north and the king of the south. So, um, having heard and read uh, for yourself this description of these kingdoms, what impression do you come out of, of reading these descriptions? What, what are some of the qualities, characteristics that comes through this um, visionary narration, again, of future events? Uh, yeah, Ryan. Yeah, so as we think about what characterizes these kingdoms uh, in their quest of power, one of the tools they use is flattery. <laughs> a, uh, you know, a, a tongue that um, uh, seeks to bend people to, to, to follow them. So, so good. So as we think about you know, the characteristics of these kingdoms, um, one characteristic of them is they are characterized by the use of flattery. Um, in their quest to win and maintain power. Good. What else strikes you about these kingdoms? Yeah, so, you know, in giving this account, like, it's like this ongoing series of, like, the guy became strong, but you know, came to his end and, you know, made a plan for succession and yet got cut off and somebody else who wasn't in line for the throne came and took his place. Um, so, it, it, absolutely, and especially, like, with, with verses one through f four, like, these are the big kingdoms, like, you know. Um, this is, is Persia, you know, three more kings shall arise in Persia and a fourth shall rise after them who's richer and greater than the earlier Persian kings. And, and he, he goes and, and, and tries to invade Greece. And because of that, his kingdom ends up getting crushed by this greater king. Um, you know, and, and we've seen this already. Daniel's given us this vision of the Persians and Medes rise to power and it's swift and then it gets cut off by one stronger than they are. Um, and this, this figure of Alexander the Great, who's, you know, uh, you know I, I've used this line before, but, you know, supposedly wept because at the age of 30, there's nowhere left, you know, like, I've done it all. <laughs> there's nowhere else to conquer. And then he dies um, shortly after. And as Daniel's describing it, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority which he ruled. So his kingdom, you know, literally gets, you know, cannibalizes itself um, with these four separate kingdoms that arise over Alexander's empire. And so, you know, uh, as great as these kingdoms and as strong as they might appear at any one moment, 
it's, it seems very momentary. And especially as you read it all in like succession in this chapter, like, you know, uh, until we get to one particular king, most of these folks are, are giving, given like a verse or two and then it goes on to the next one. <laughs> um, so it's a very, you know, he's dealing with hundreds of years of history in a very quick succession. Um, and it gives that impression, as, as Scott said, that no matter how great or terrifying any of these kingdoms might appear at a particular moment, uh, they fall. Good. What else strikes you about this narration of kingdoms? Yeah, Tim. Yeah, all this, like, you have, like, this power struggle between these kings, and as you say, like, are rolling back and forth over these people. Um, and, the you know, the people are caught in the middle and are just, like, pawns on a chessboard that get sacrificed for the ambitions of these kings. And it is this kind of same old, same old. I like that kind of description of it. Like, it's this, this idea that, um, you know, Human history is, is, is full of these perennially unstable kingdoms, powers that arise and try to make themselves glory and destroy countless numbers of people, and, and then they fall. Um, like, and it's like evil upon evil, um, but it's, and they do horrible things, but there's another story going on of a kingdom that's eternal. And as you say, that's the message Daniel has been giving us. Um, and again, this is a consistent message throughout the book. You know, as, you know what unites those narrative chapters of, of 1 through 6 with the prophetic chapters 7 through 12 is this emphasis on the sovereignty of God over the nations of the earth. And so, you know, think of all those conversations Daniel had with Nebuchadnezzar look, as great as you think you are, there's one greater than you. <laughs> um, and one who can take your mind in a moment. Um, or, you know, to think of his, um, his encounter, you know, this, uh, um, uh, his encounter in chapter um, five with King Belshazzar. Like, you know, your kingdom is going to be taken from you this very night. Like, you know, so, like, no matter, and, and this is, he's giving this prophecy at a moment where Belshazzar is feasting and, and having a good time and throwing a party and demonstrating his power by drinking from things, from nations that his, his father had conquered. Um, but, but, you know, that very night, the kingdom's taken from him. Um, so it's this kind of consistent picture, as Tim says, of, of how... Um, uh, the book of Daniel has been showing us the, um, the, this kind of ongoing rise and fall of the, the, the kings of man in face of the sovereign king of the universe. Good. Other things that strike you about these kingdoms.
Yeah, and even as we see, like, again, most of the chapter is driven by this kind of series of conflicts between the king of the north and the king of the south. Um, and we can, again, I guess I should do this way um, to orient to the points of the compass. So king of the north and king of the south are, like, banging heads against one another. Um, and some of times it's conflict. Sometimes it's flattery. Notice sometimes these kingdoms are interacting with one another, like uh, in verse um, 6. After some years, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. So, like, again, this idea, like, and, and think about that, kingdoms of the world, sometimes they're at conflict with one another, sometimes they attempt to forestall future conflict by arranging marriages, um, like, you know, um, Think about like Henry the um, Fourth, uh, you know, is is wed to a daughter of the King of France as a kind of hoped for mechanism of bringing the long period of war between the two nations to a close. Um, so, uh, so yeah. So sometimes it's sometimes it's conflict. Sometimes it's the you know flattery and political machinations, and sometimes you know. Like, that brings about certain alliances. Um, so just to give you, so, um, so who, who do we think the king of the north and south are? Nor and north and south of what? So, um, so you have so king of the south is 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 Egypt, and Egypt is, at this point is ruled by what are known as the Ptolemaic kings. Um, so again, thinking of Alexander's empire gets cut up into four pieces. One piece of it is is over Egypt, um, ruled by a series of guys, most of whom are named. Not all of them are named Ptolemy, but most of them are. So they're usually known as the Ptolemaic. Um, all right, so those are our kings of the south. King of the north is a little more kind of biblically driven. Um, yeah, so again, like, mo like if we were looking from like a world historical perspective, we might think king of the north is Greece, like, you know, Macedon. That's because that's, you know, the from a historical, world historical standpoint, that's the most strong of the post-Alexander kingdoms. But we're in a biblical perspective. So in this case, the king of the north is Syria. So the center of this axis is um, verse 16, you know, um, uh, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. And we've seen Daniel use this phrase before, glorious land, to describe the land of the people of God. And think about it, like, so if, if Israel is the center of Daniel's visionary compass here, to the north of that is the Syrian, and, and it's the Seleucids, or, or how they're called. Um, and to the south is, is Egypt, the, the Ptolemaic. And what's caught in between? Israel. <laughs> so as you see, the kings of the north and kings of the south go at it for hundreds of years, um, who's caught in the middle? As Tim said earlier, it's the people. 
Um, and in this case, it's particularly the people of, of God. Um, and, you know, uh, we're not going to do this, um, but I, it's because I want to focus more on the kind of overall message. But you literally could go verse by verse through this and read detailed histories of the, you know, this period of ancient history and, and see how accurate this prophetic vision is. So let me just give you an example. So this marriage alliance in verse 6. So after some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm. He and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. So a marriage alliance was attempted, um, and uh, so the, uh, you had this marriage between Antiochus II, um, so he's the Seleucid king, and Berenice, who was the daughter of Ptolemy, um, Philadelphus. So shortly after their marriage, Ptolemy died, Antiochus divorced Berenice and returned to his earlier wife, and so fearing the possibility of a triangle, uh, his wife Laodice poisoned Antiochus and encouraged her son Seleucus Callinicius to murder Berenice and her child, thus leaving the way clear for him to inherit the throne. So, <laughs> um, so you have all this political intrigue that Daniel is, is being shown um, is coming down the pike, and these horrible people that are, are ruling um, this area and whose rule has disastrous effects on the people of God through their political machinations. Um, and again, sometimes coming through open warfare between the, the Seleucids and the Ptolemids, and, and sometimes through these kind of um, alliances that give way to all kinds of political machinations um, behind the scenes. Um, so we're being given a really detailed portrait of, of this history post-Daniel. And again, this is all stuff that's coming well after him. But he's being given a vision of Israel's future for the next 400 years. Um, and, you know, and it's the way that he's not focused on, I mean, he's focused on world history and, and kingdoms outside of Israel. But all the actions of these kingdoms outside Israel have direct effects on the people of God. Um, so it's, it's this kind of way that um, God is looking at, um, or, or God's showing Daniel a vision of history that is looking at the big events on the front pages of the paper. Um, uh, yeah, there were no papers. <laughs> I'm being anachronistic. But like the front page of Jerusalem Times, um, which are focused on all these world historic events. But God's focus is, is as we go through, is narrowed on um, the effects of these kingdoms on the people of God. Um, so let's, let's move into that. So um, in the midst of these big world historical events, um, what do we see happening with the people of God? Um, what are some of the various responses the people of God are having to these big uh, events, the, the machinations of these kingdoms? And what, you know, 
what are we encouraged to do in response to these kinds of kingdoms and machinations? Okay, so two things, um, like, you know, from that. Like, on the one hand, you have some people who are being, sedu again, seduced by flattery. You're having some people who are buying in to this, this message of, um, you know, uh, usually it's to go back to what Jay was saying about, like, cultural persuasion. Um, people who are, are falling in with what a, a process that was known as Hellenization. You know, they're, they're being, um, they're more and more adopting Hellenistic Greek culture. Um, so, so you have some people within the, the land of Israel who are being um, swayed by this message of, this, of these Greek rulers over them and who to get in good with the powers over them are, um, you know, um, compromising. Um, and in contrast to that, you also have these people who, you know, what are the qualities of the people? Um, they know their God. They stand firm. They take action. So, you know, it's again, the, the, it's the knowledge of God that allows some people within Israel to, um, to take a stand, um, to take action. Um, so you have some who, you know, are, are forgetting God, forgetting his covenant, forgetting his ways, and being swayed to go along with the earthly authorities that empower over them. And they're contrasted with people who are characterized by knowing God. And by knowing God, um, they can stand firm, you know, and um, think like we've been reading through Hebrews, like stand firm, hold fast to your confession, um, that kind of idea, um, and, and therefore are in a position to take action, to resist um, the attempts to, um, to, to, um, to, to sway them to abandon their God. Good. What else do we see about the people of God and how... Um, yeah, how they're being affected by these things. And just, again, just to give you the timeline, we've moved forward in the Seleucid reign. We're now to the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, who we saw earlier in the book. Um, you know, and we're, again, given a picture of his actions. Forces from him shall appear, profane the temple and fortresses, shall take away the regular burnt offerings, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes, again, is the, the, the Greek ruler who came in, um, sacrificed a pig on the, the holy altar of God, and set it up to be a shrine. Um, either an altar or an image of Zeus is set up in the Holy of Holies. So trying to take the temple dedicated to the God and turn it into a temple to um, a Greek god and, and openly and intentionally desecrated that temple in ways meant to be offensive um, to the people of God. Um, 
So, um, so in the midst of that, um, we see some Israelites who are, who are being swayed by his flattery, like who are going along, and other people who are standing firm. Yeah, their standing firm allows them to take action. <laughs> you know, and it's their faith in God. Like, again, if you don't believe that God is real, then what's to hold you back from compromising with the God? Well, if you don't think the sacrifices are really doing anything or really that important, or if there's a God who's really going to be dishonored by this desecration, then, yeah, why not? Uh, join with, you know, winning, win the... In this case, not when in Rome, but when the Greeks are in power, go with the Greeks. <laughs> um, and in, in contrast to that action that some people are taking, you have people who know, we know God. Um, we know this is, is wrong. We know this is an abomination. And we're going to stand firm. And they're taking, uh, um, standing firm um, allows them to take action. So again, the Maccabean revolt. Um, so there is this massive Jewish resistance that uh, eventually uh, succeeds. And so as we saw earlier in the book of Daniel, yeah, there is a period of time where there are no sacrifices in the temple, but it's, it's set to a number of days. Um, and, the, and God will restore uh, the worship of his people. Um, so, um, but in this case, um, the, what do the people need to do? The people don't just, like, you know, like earlier we, we saw, like, uh, it's for 2,300 evenings and mornings. You know, like some people might be sitting there thinking, okay, I just have to hold out, you know, 2,300 evenings and mornings, and it'll all be okay. Um, no. <laughs> In the midst of this, um, they're called, you know, to hold fast, to stand firm, to, to um, take their knowledge of God and, and resist um, the power of that's over them, even if it, it means persecution and destruction. And we see in verse 33, for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. This does not sound like, it's not like resistance and it's all going to be smooth sailing, easy, standing firm, um, everything's going to be good. No, standing firm has a cost. Um, but the point is that that cost and Daniel's being shown this to prepare the people of Israel to endure these events. Like, again, by showing it ahead of time in a detailed way, the people of God should be equipped, and the people who know their God should be equipped to live through these events faithfully and not succumb to the temptation to, you know, if, if it's flattery or if it's coercion to... to compromise their faith in the living God. Jonathan, you Yeah, I, I would say, yeah, that's true. Um, but I would say more, um, more than just knowing what's coming, it's reminding, being reminded that there's a sovereign God behind all this. Like, again, the, 
And, and that's part of the point. The, the history is so detailed, or the prophecy is so detailed, like it reads like history. Um, and for God to be able to say these things to, to Daniel hundreds of years before the events happened demonstrates the, that there is a sovereign God who stands uh, above and beyond human history. Um, so human history, and as we read this, these verses, it's chaos. <laughs> it's a mess. It's all these plots, some succeeding, some going wrong, some invasions, <laughs> um, um, sieges of fortresses. Um, you know, human history is, is a mess. It's why, you know, again, I'm a historian. It's why historians are horrible at predictors of future. <laughs> Because knowing the past is no guarantee you're going to be able to predict what happens because human beings are, 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 are wonderfully inconsistent that way. Um, but there is a God who knows exactly what's going to happen. Um, a God who is over and sees these things and is not just doesn't just know it, but is directing it for his particular purposes. And he's strengthening his people to endure um, to trust in, again, it's the contrast we've been given throughout the book of, of Daniel. You can either trust in the kingdom that rules over you, like we saw in the very first chapter, like they're being swayed with food and drink and going to Babylonian Academy and, you know, being um, taught all the Chaldean arts. Like, you can go that route, or you can be like Daniel and his companions who are refusing the, you know, food. Uh, that might be compromised by idolatrous worship, who aren't going to bend the knee to the image that Nebuchadnezzar who stands up, who aren't going to cease praying to their God, um, who are going to, as we get to here, to remain faithful to God, to stand firm, and to act on the basis of that who they trust. I think it's a little of both. Um, and, and again, it's not, um, you know, not everybody's going to come consistently react in the face of persecution. And there are some people who are going to, um, you know, um, uh, like I'm thinking like another historical example. Um, oh, uh, and it's a problem when you think of other historical examples that they suddenly skip your mind. Um, I'm blanking on his name, but there was an, a Protestant uh, archbishop who, when Mary comes to the throne, initially recants his Protestantism and then went back on his recantation, recanted his recantation. Um, and when he is being burned, he, um, so he's burned at the stake, he put his hand that he signed the recantation in, in the fire first. So, you know, so I think there are going to be people like that 
who initially like succumbed to the flattery, and then who maybe like so maybe they went along. Um, and there there are hints that there were um, people in Israel who um, helped Antiochus, like you know, helped him rule over the land um, before the abominations. So he's, he's been ruling over Israel for a while. He goes down to Egypt. Um, uh, rumor comes back to Israel that he died. And so there are a bunch of people who celebrated <laughs> back in Israel. So he comes back mad. <laughs> and, and that's the moment he unleashes this horrendous um, attack on the people of, of God. So there were presumably some people already in Israel who had been cooperating with him who now as persecution in, in, um, intensifies, I can imagine, especially once he commits the abominations um, of desolation, like you know, pro openly profaning the temple of God. Um, you know, at that point, like, you know, for the people who you know, like might have been compromising for the sake of just maintaining peace, like that's a Rubicon moment, like a turning point, like, you can't compromise with that. Um, so I, I imagine there are people who had succumbed to flattery, um, you know, at a particular moment, um, who stumbled, um, and and yet they're going to be among those who um, who God uh, redeems and and purifies and washes white. Um, like I think so. I think in response to your question, there are those who stand firm all along. There are those who stumble. And yet both are in this, this camp of being among those who are, are purified. Yeah, absolutely. This is giving us, and, and um, like I think I said a couple weeks ago, like um, ministers sometimes have a hard time making sermons on this because, again, I love it because it's history. <laughs> you know, this is like, yeah, give me, like, um, but, but you're putting your finger on what the, the you know, and, and it's for all of us. It's not just like, you know, um, like what are the, pe what's the encouragement that the people of God should take out of this? Like, what should our application be? And it should be our response. So one, we have to, to, to you know, continue to know our God and pursue that knowledge of God. Just as we saw, like, back in chapter 9, it, you know, Daniel studying the words of the prophet Jeremiah, and that puts him, you know, into this moment of, oh, this needs to happen, and we haven't repented. It's like, so in that pursuit of the knowledge of God, it causes him to act. And we see a similar, like, knowing God, standing firm in that faith, then, um, you know, puts him in a position. So first, we're called to believe. 
Um, it's those who know their God who will be strong and take action. Faith in God's sovereign power is the foundation and basis for all of our hope and all of our activity for God. Second, we're called to resist faithfully, even unto death. Sometimes obedience to God will mean a lifetime of faithfulness in a hostile environment. But the hope of glory rooted in God's sovereign control of history makes any sacrifice worthwhile for the sake of his kingdom. Um, third, uh, as Tim just noted, we're called to teach those around us. The wise among the people shall make many understand. Um, so this idea that, you know, it's not just a, we're holding firm as individuals, but we're to teach and to encourage those around us to, to, to know our God. Um, and then, um, you know, all of this is, is framed in a bookend of prayer. Like, um, you know, this vision is prompted by Daniel praying in, in chapter uh, 10, and we're going to see continued prayer in chapter 12. So um, the victory in this conflict, we're being reminded, is not won by uh, internal wisdom, internal strength, but it comes from the strengthening of God. Um, it comes through putting on that full armor of God that we see in Ephesians. Like, those are the tools um, for this fight that we need. Um, we need to, um, again, to, I used this last time, but to use it again. Um, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So, yeah, it is this great picture, not just for the, the Israelites who are, who are going to endure the tribulations of living under this horrible, horrible person. Um, and again, like... Uh, you know, he's described as, um, you know, uh, you know, he shall, um, his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. You know, this is, an, you know, a guy who, as we saw back in, um, in chapter uh, 8, um, you know, it's not just a physical warfare that he's conducting, but he is openly trying to um, end the worship of the living God um, and even set himself up like a God, um, you know, an epiphanies. Um, that's what the word means is, you know, uh, God in the flesh, um, kind of, or appearance of God. Um, and so that is how he's putting himself in open, evil opposition to God. And um, so when you encounter, the, and these are the same spiritual forces at work in our world um, that are seeking to put an end to the true worship of God, to put an end to the truth. How do we, how do we respond? Um, we respond in faith. We resist in faith. Um, we teach those around us the truth. Um, and in all things, we, you know, we, commit ourselves to, to prayer 
um, to the one sovereign uh, who is sovereign, rather than all these kings of the north and the south that come and go and think they're so powerful at a particular moment, but um, nothing they do endures. Good. Uh, other things, we're getting, closing on our end time. We can pick up the latter half of chapter 11. Chapter 12 is thankfully uh, shorter. Um, so some people, just to sort of preview, um, the, we're, um, most people, you know, uh, I haven't said anything all that um, disputation worthy uh, on verses 1 through 35. Most of the disputes come after verse 35. <laughs> um, most people recognize that this is a history or a prophecy of what's going to happen in the ancient Near East. Um, and where the dispute is, some people say it's so accurate it could not have been given to Daniel ahead of time. So that's the major dispute for verses 1 through 35, that this is such an accurate depiction of the next 400 years after Daniel. There's no way that you know, he would be able to give prophecy of this detail. Um, so it must have been written after the fact. Um, so, so that's, um, but where you get um, struggles over the passage is in the latter half. Um, some people see the whole of this referring to Antiochus, um, and other people seeing at, at around verse 36, um, uh, you know, that there's a transition into a more, using Antiochus to transition into a description of, uh, the Antichrist or an Antichrist figure. Um, so maybe we can talk some a little bit about that uh, next week um, and then uh, talk about chapter 12 when our friend Michael uh, shows back up. Uh, all right, well, let me uh, close our time together in prayer. Oh God, we know that there are wars and rumors of wars that um, as we read our newspapers every day, there are things that um, we read and hear um, that uh, could be so depressing or discouraging um, that might uh, uh, tempt us to respond to the powers of this world um, by you employing its means and its power. Um, but uh, you uh, instruct us by your word, that we don't respond to the news of the day-to-day -day kingdoms of this earth, but we respond in the knowledge of your eternal truth given to us. We respond um, in the confidence that you are sovereign and that you are working all things to your perfect and glorious end and that you're working most of all for the redemption and perfection of your kingdom and of your people working for that moment where we will all be uh, washed white in the blood of the Lamb. And it is that Lamb uh, who we come to praise this day, our Savior Jesus Christ. And so we ask that you would um, drive from us the cares of this world and this earth and help us rejoice in the glory of who you are and what you've done for your people and what you will do uh, for you are the God of past, present, and future, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. And it's you that we come to worship uh, confidently um, and joyfully 
uh, not because of our strength, but from the strength and wisdom that comes from you and your word. Help us in this coming hour to worship you, we pray, in Christ's name, by the power of your spirit. Amen.